0: The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Call me
1: Snake.
2: Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch.
1: And I'm Molly Balin,
2: And we are really happy to have this special guest today in this latest bonus episode. He's been active for more than 40 years and has found great success in voice acting for TV shows, movies, and video games, such as Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Real Ghostbusters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles teen titans teen titans go toxic crusaders where on earth is carmen san diego heavy metal and of course spongebob squarepants for his most famous role squidward for which he received a daytime emmy nomination for outstanding performer in an animated program but the main reason he's joining us today is because he is in one of the most memorable scenes in escape from new york the broadway show welcome to the podcast roger bumpus
0: I'm very happy to be here. I just fell into Squidward on that. Sorry about that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) When you do the voice that often for 20 years, it's hard to get out of it. So I will I will promise I will uh, I will stay into the Roger Bumpus mode for this uh, this particular moment. (laughs) Very happy (laughs) to be here, though. And I, I, I love talking about this topic, though.
2: Oh, great. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. Before we were rolling, we were already starting to chat, and you started telling us uh, about working with Ernest Borgnine, who, of course, is in that scene with you. He's the only happy person in the entire crowd in that scene, actually.
0: Yes, unless you look at us up on stage, and we're selling it like crazy. Yes, that is For true. For those of you that don't know, uh, there was a, a scene in the Derelict Theater. Uh, I was just looking up the history of the Wiltern Theater, which where we shot it, and uh, we were doing a, uh, a little Broadway show in drag. And we were, if you look closely, we are really selling it. And Ernest is digging it, too. So that was a very happy moment for everybody on the, on the, on the whole story. But the, 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 the thing I was, I was going to get to with you is that, of course, Ernest went on to work on the SpongeBob show also. And one day I was in the stu- studio with him and I just realized, oh, we were in the same scene. We didn't have any lines together or whatever. And I told him the story that I was one of the people up on stage dancing when he was watching. And he just busted out in this typical Ernest Borgnine uh, grin, and and he hugged me. It was one of of the finest moments in my entire career that he did that for me. So it's a nice little circle, this little circle of theater there that he did that, and I was there, and then he came and did this with me. So, you know, it's it's nice to see how life uh, follows.
2: Yeah, that is great. For listeners who don't know, he plays Mermaid Man on SpongeBob.
0: Yes, he and Tim Conway, but another person that I was just really happy to, to, to meet and work with.
2: So let's jump into this this great scene. I mean, it really stands out. It's really the one lighthearted moment in an otherwise very dark movie. When when oh, you yeah. filmed when you filmed the scene, did you have a sense that this would be the case, or did you, or was it not apparent until you watched the movie for the first time that this scene really stood out? Like, had you seen the full script? Because it really is it, it, the tone of this scene does not fit with anything else in this movie.
0: Yeah, we knew that there was something intended by John uh, to, to be humorous because the the reason we were there is that he came to see one of the shows that the the, the group that you see are part of a, a theatrical group called Low Moan Spectacular that I got associated with when I moved to uh, Los Angeles. And we wrote and uh, produced these really physical comedy plays. And uh, John Carpenter came to see one of them. And so he said, well, I'll just take all of, all of you and just throw you up on stage in this one little scene, and we'll have, you know, a lighthearted quality to it. And that's, and that's where it came out. So we knew that he knew of our comedy, so we were just, we, we didn't really know the rest of the script. We knew it was a prison thing, we knew uh, people were in it, but we, none of us really read the script. We got the idea of what was going on, but we just gave it, uh, you know, the, our, our best silliness up there.
1: Well, I was kind of curious if you could talk a little bit about the rehearsal process for the scene, and the choreography for
0: it. Yeah, uh, we, uh, we worked on that for you know, about almost a whole day. It was very simple, very primitive kind of thing. All I had to do was learn a few steps. But the song we were singing was originally Everything's Coming Up Roses uh, as a merman. Because that was, that was a great juxtaposition of that song in this particular environment. That was, that was part of the comedy that John came up with. And then after we did that and shot everything, a few days later, of course, we got the news that uh, there was a little bit of a copyright issue with using that song. <laughs> so we had to go back in and uh, alter the song as best we could because we, we couldn't reshoot the thing. So we just, it, 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 there was a long, you know, long shot there. We could, we could get away with a little bad uh, lip flap in the, in the lyrics and stuff. So we changed it from everything's coming up roses to everyone's coming to New York and so it, it, even, it reflected even more comedically grim on the notion that this was a giant prison.
2: Yeah, now, we love we, the so lyrics it, to it, that song,
0: yeah. yeah or, or so you, can, you can tell the lyrics. Okay, I, I've only uh, seen it a few times, so I didn't know whether it was, uh, it was discernible, because the melody is very similar to Everything's Coming Up Roses. <laughs> <Yeah. clears
2: throat> <laughs> so, that, so then the actual audio that we're hearing in the movie was recorded just the audio itself after the fact then?
0: Right. That was the that was the overdub that we had to go in to change it just to keep him being sued. Mm. So what was it like working with John Carpenter? It was wonderful. I mean, you know, he he was busy doing the the director thing, but he was very accessible to us. And uh, I sent you that photo to have all of you seen that
2: yes which yes. one are you in that photo we'll put we'll put it on our okay. facebook page for all of our listeners yeah
0: i i, I definitely would put it on the facebook page because i i'm the hot one on the left in red <laughs> the nah. mick, mick jagger in drag you know <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh yeah but he he was he was joking with us all the time and and you, as you can see in the photo he was very up to you know some silliness uh offset off so uh uh, it was it was a very nice experience working with him, as, as little as we all did. But he just kind of gave us our head and said, go do it, and we did.
1: Well, it seems like you had very defined characters, even just looking at the costuming. And I was kind of curious, because I understand Frank Doubleday and Kurt Russell had some input in terms of their costuming. I was wondering if you guys had input as well for your costumes.
0: Well, I wish I could say I did. They handed me this, and I went, okay, that's nice. Okay, fine, put that on too. Okay, fine. I, You know, back then, we were all just kidding. And so I, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to wear a dress in a movie. I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do (laughs) to the best of my ability, by the way.
2: What was your first thought the first time you looked at yourself in the mirror in the costume?
0: I thought, damn, you're hot. (laughs) 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 And I still think so. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so uh low moon
2: spectacular when uh when we um looked at the credits we saw that and first we were like that can't be someone's name could it and then we did a little internet digging and realized oh okay that's not a person's name so what what's the oh. background of that group uh, you know how, how did you low- come mo- low- yeah
0: low moon spectacular uh, was started by uh three people uh they were in england uh alan sherman ron house and this White. And they uh, were doing broad comedies just like this. And their most famous show, their first show, was called El Grande de Coca-Cola, which is a very bad nightclub act in Spain. It's their most famous work. And they, were, they went over into Europe to do the, their, their various sketches and whatever. And the European people didn't quite get into that particular comedy and the particular gags and jokes. And so they, the response, instead of being big laughter, would be this, this oh... And someone came backstage after the show and went, well, wow, that was just a low-moan spectacular. And that <laughs> caught on, and that became the name of the theater, of the theater group. I joined them in 80, after Mr. Spielberg canceled my film. <laughs> if you want to get into that, I can do that too. And we did several shows around the entire world.
2: Mm. So cool. what, what is this tidbit you just dropped us to us here about Steven Spielberg?
0: Well, um, what brought me to Los Angeles, I went to, straight to New York City from uh, Arkansas and got involved with the National Lampoon. And they were just about to release Animal House. And uh, so they sent out a tour, a comedy tour and a rock band tour across the entire country. We had a great time, mainly just to promote, promote uh, the National Lampoon. And that came out. And then, well, I, I'm, I'm just saying this. I, I got a lot of good reviews. And the head of the Lampoon, Maddie Simmons, was, was, uh, was one of these people that loved to, to bring out new talent. He uh, uh, brought out uh, John Belushi and Chevy Chase and, uh, and sell other people. And, and because of that, he wanted to make me his, you know, his next breakout star. Well, because of the success of Animal House, Universal said, we got to do another movie. Well, it just happened to be the right time for the third Jaws film. So they decided to do Jaws. <laughs> and the thing was Jaws 3, People Zero. <laughs> and that was, and and that was the best part of the script, as far as I'm concerned. We were going to, it, was, it was about a movie company making a shark movie, and we were going to show how Bruce worked. And and Mr. Spielberg stepped in at that time and said, "To Universal, you know, that's going to ruin the fantasy of my film. So you guys better cancel this little comedy you got going, or I'm going to walk." And so, what do you think they did? You know, they they, they canceled the film, and that was my, my Hollywood tragedy story. I always tell myself, tell, my, tell myself that I wasn't ready for a, a lead role in the film. I am now, okay? And that we all ended up with what
2: actually ended up being Jaws 3.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, and, and there, there was another conjunction there. Uh, it was right after uh, Bo Derrick had made 10, and she was going to be in the film. And according to the, uh, the script, I had a love scene with Bo Derrick. Oh, so that, that, so that compounds the tragedy of the moment. <laughs> you know? Oh,
2: Spielberg, how could you?
0: <laughs> well, I, I understand if I met him, you know, I haven't met him uh, really. I, mean, I, I crossed paths once, but I, I, if I had chances to chat with him, I, I'd tell him the story I just told you, you know, and say, you know, I, I would have done the same thing you did. You know? <laughs> but that, yeah, that's my Hollywood tragedy story so that that brought me out to the book to Los Angeles, and that's where I met up with the low moan spectacular people, and we began doing these shows that tremendously physical shows i mean that was that was our forte I mean uh, we would do stuff where we would get shot and fall downstairs, get up, get shot again, fall downstairs again and it was it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I can still do the falls; I just can't get back up
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of along these lines, I'm just curious. What makes a successful creative collaboration for you?
0: For me, it's to, it, it, for someone to allow me to have my head and to, to have my creative input, uh, I'll, I'll digress a little bit here. Uh, the way we do the SpongeBob show is that we do a couple of pages as written, and then we do what's called the crazy take. Which we can do anything we want. That mm. sort of liberating process is, is just essential and it's and it's very efficient too because the writers get what they want you get to do what you want and sometimes what you what you improvise uh makes it into the show and that's true in so so many different uh venues of of entertainment and uh, artistry if i had one pathway to to follow down for any sort of creative endeavor that's it you know Mm. i'll do exactly what you want me to do but give me my head for at least one take does, uh, does SpongeBob
2: record all of you as a group, or, or are you all in separate areas?
0: Whenever whenever we can, we work as a group because there's that ensemble quality. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you've just got if you've got two lines or something, uh, they'll just knock you out and send you underway. way.
2: Well, since we've we've turned uh, to, to SpongeBob here, we got a few questions we'd love to ask you about other parts of your career other than Escape from New York, and, and of course, Squidward it it, it is uh, is the big one. This, the show started in 1999. At that point, you'd been in the business for about 20 years already, and you certainly had had success, but nothing like what would end up coming from SpongeBob. I mean, this show, it's generational at this point. I was aware of the show, but I'm a little too old to have watched it, you know, when it first came out. But my kids watch it now, and I watch it with them, and they love the show, and I love the show. It's a great show for kids and for adults. I think the show is absolutely hysterical. When you, At what point do you realize that this is not just another voice job, but this is now this gigantic phenomenon. When does that switch flip for you?
0: You know, when we first uh, did the show, and it was people say, well, how did you get the part? And blah, blah, blah. Like, like it was some kind of fantastic Hollywood story. And it wasn't. It was just another audition. You go to your agent's office. Back then, you go to your agent's office and, and read in their little recording booth, and you do it. Now, I got the part. We did the pilot. They gave me a copy of the pilot. I took it home to my family. I played it for them, and they all fell asleep. <laughs> and, and, and it was only about two years afterwards that I was just on the street talking to somebody and I casually mentioned that I worked on this particular project and their eyes got big and they say, oh my God, you guys are so hip and I, I, I kind of figured we, we were on to something then and, and, we, and it turns out we became very similar to Looney Tunes in both formats, both 11-minute cartoons, they're shorts, we're not half hours, and the silliness and the use of animation uh, where, like, you get hit with a frying pan, your face turns in the shape of a frying pan. That, that that's, that's what I call the, the essentials of animation, that you, you exaggerate and, and, uh, and, and distort things for the sake of animation. So once I saw that was happening, that people, we were becoming something of an icon. Uh, we were in... Comic strips in newspapers. That's a dead that's a giveaway. <laughs> you're, 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 you're being used as a reference as far as the, the culture goes. And we just, we're just a nice little cartoon for uh, the particular time. I, I exaggerate and say we're kind of like the Beatles, the right group for the right time, the right particular passage of time. And uh, it just continued to go. And uh, we're so happy that, it, that it, is, it is still going right now. We're, we're still, we even have a spin off going. Yes, so it, that, uh, as, and, and as we record also, this, it was also, just also, announced. I uh, yes. Also, uh, you can't see it, uh, but I'm standing in front of what I call my museum. Uh, the, the merchandising for SpongeBob was it took off right away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw it was everywhere. Every aisle of every store had something that was SpongeBob. So I began to collect it. And I have the world's biggest collection. I'm going to submit it to Guinness uh, in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. awesome. And so, yeah, when I saw... The, the the proliferation of all this merchandise. I mean, we're talking not the toy aisle alone, but the, the food aisle, the car supply aisle, the, the dental, uh every everything in the lunch boxes, galore. And so I just decided I was gonna do that. And so when I saw the proliferation of, of that merchandise, I knew that that people thought it was something big. At least Nickelodeon did, and they were right. And so I began to to collect all that stuff and we, uh, I, I use the word frequently, though, but it, we, we became something of an American icon. Mm. And, and it, it's, it's such a wonderful thing to be a part of that kind of legacy. And you mentioned uh, you with your kids. Uh, I have now seen a third generation of people that have kids very young. And now their kids have had kids. And they're like, you know, maybe late 30s, early 40s or something. They've got a grandchild a sudden, mm. And they're turning them on to it. One of the common stories that I, I, I hear at, uh, at Comic-Con is that the uh, the show is one of the few shows that parents will watch with their kids and enjoy that experience. Mm. It is, well, you know, funny is funny.
2: I, I am a 44-year-old man. I am not ashamed to admit I laugh out loud at that show. I think it's hysterical.
0: It's got some very good moments. There's there's ups and downs in any long-running show, of course. But um, it, 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 its essence is good insanity, innocence. And, and silliness, and I, I, I'm glad that the world has accepted us the way it has.
1: Well, in doing some research, it looks like you've been doing comedy for at least since your 20s. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your process in developing a character and what's changed in your approach over the course of your career.
0: Yeah, I, I have been doing comedy uh, more than more than that. I was I was doing comedy uh, back before I even left left school. It, it has always been my life, mm. uh, my main interest, yeah. and it's, it's just you learn to think that way and it becomes the way you interpret everything that comes your way in the universe and uh, there there are there are certain shortcuts you develop through the years um, you also develop just like a stand up comic you develop routines gags bits and that you that's at the back of your head immediately if some topic comes up you got you got some gags you got a file to pull from and it's going through your life that you accumulate all those things and it becomes very easy after a while. And of course it becomes easy when, when people are already in, in your wheelhouse, you know, when they, they come to you and say, Oh, you know, you're Squidward. Okay. So you, even if you try a little bit of comedy, maybe it's not even funny. They'll still laugh. Cause they're <laughs> black, and, they like it, and they like you, you know, so, you know, I don't have to go out and prove myself anymore. So that's, that's fun. It makes it very relaxed. When you're voicing a,
2: a main character on a show like this, and you know uh, you do a few other characters on the show, is, it, is there a challenge to doing a different character when you already are a main character to make sure people don't recognize that, oh, that's the person that voices
0: Squirted also doing that voice? Yeah, well, um, that's an interesting question. We don't really pay much attention to that because um, um, all of our casts are, are pretty darn versatile, and if by chance uh, you, I do a, 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 an incidental character, and we all do incidental characters, and it's got a little bit of Squidward in there, the, the directors and the animators uh, immediately say, uh, let's move away from Squidward. Don't we, we don't, we don't, you know, don't want you know, uh, to telegraph that sort of thing. So we get to do all kinds of, of different um, uh, peripheral characters, and there's very few of us that would, would say, that someone else would say, oh, that's that actor doing that. Because we're so we're so we're just versatile. People can do lots of different things.
2: So uh, one of the um, other projects we've worked on a career that I mentioned back at the beginning is one of my favorite movies, Heavy Metal. And you do a couple of characters there. You do Hanover Fist, whose voice changes from being a bit of a milk toast into being mm-hmm. a big monster, and the uh, Doctor Anorak, who just drones on. And so with with Hanover Fist, where the, the character starts out, you know, just something, and then eventually he's like. When you, so you're playing one character who has two completely different voices there in, the, mm-hmm. in that scene. Do you do anything to try to make the two voices have some kind of similarity between the two, even though they're vastly
0: different? In that particular situation, no, the, the whole idea was a complete departure from this, this milk toast little guy.: He's a very fine guy. He wouldn't do anything wrong into the <laughs> other guy, you know, pagan's too good for him, kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah there, there, was no, there was no attempt to try to connect the two because mm. visually you see what's happening with, with, this, with this sort of thing. Talk about heavy metal, though. My goodness, what a cult that thing became. Yeah. <laughs> um, at, at, at Comic-Con, I still get people that bring in actual cells for me to sign, and I'm wow. blown away by that. Mm. Wow. The, the other cult, uh, I don't know if you mentioned this, though, but is, uh, is Invader Zim. Uh, that was another Nickelodeon show that was that was just as bizarre as heavy metal ever was, and it became a cult. It had its own Comic Con, mm. and we just we just recently uh, did a uh, TV special for that. So maybe that's an indication they might want to bring it back. But that's that that has a tremendous following, also.
1: You know, you've done a substantial amount of voice work over the course of your career. Could you chat a bit about what you have found to be the most rewarding and the most challenging aspects of it?
0: It's always rewarding when people respond in the public that's i keep coming mm-hmm. back to the, the term the the, the the idea of comic-con because that's where we get to meet the audiences we don't have audiences in our work uh my mm-hmm. main job is to please the animators and the directors and ourselves just to, to humor ourselves And so when we do something that that you get that feedback that gratification that that that, that positive reinforcement that you did a good job and people say how much they like what you did and all that stuff. It's a little bit of an ego stroke, yes, but you know it's unlike theater or even film for that matter. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 very important for us to 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 get the feedback from people and let us know we're doing okay. You know, besides ratings and that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm
2: bring up another project uh, that you worked on uh, the real ghostbusters another one i mentioned back at the beginning you voiced lewis tully who of course was played by rick moranis in the movie when you do a character like that do you try to match the original actor's voice or are you just put your own spin
0: on it i, I did i i always tried to uh, um copy rick as best i could a lot of times the lines didn't, didn't flow that way that I remember his character. But the, the line that I would always say to warm up to getting him was from the first Ghostbusters. So who does your taxes? <laughs> 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 that, that, was my, that was my main thing. You know? so I, that's how I got into to, uh, Rick's, uh, Rick's character on that. We well, did a few episodes anyway, so I, I, there was a lot of uh, stress involved.
2: Well, I I must say, Roger, your memory is is impeccable. Uh, You know, that these projects that you worked on decades ago for sometimes only a couple of days at a time, incredible recall here.
0: I'm I'm reading from (laughs) cue (laughs) cards.
1: Well, speaking of memory, in developing your craft over time, uh, what were some of the most memorable and profound learning experiences for you?
0: You know, the... the, the that ever really happened to me, and it's pervasive. Uh, in, in when I started working and uh, being around what I always called the big guns in the voice world, especially in animation, uh, I would see them come up with a character. I, I knew what that character was supposed to be. I, I saw the breakdown, and then I saw what they came up with. And it was always just a, a flash in my head. My God, I never thought of doing it that way. And so, of course, I would steal immediately. Um, and then <laughs> uh, you, you, I, I learned from my colleagues and my peers uh, and, and people that were not even my peers were way, way above me. So uh, that, that's the process. And it's so enjoyable. Uh, of course, unless you really do steal, uh, but it's, it's it's an enjoyable process that you know it's organic, that you are actually learning. you, you, you never get to the point where oh, okay, I, I know everything that needs to be done now, so I, you know, I'm, I have nothing to learn. I might as well just kill myself. but it, it's it's a wonderful process of, of just this, this organic uh, absorption of your your colleague's talent and, and, and creativity. I have so much to owe everybody I've ever worked with, it seems.
2: Well, I know that uh, we only have a couple minutes left with you. So, uh, Molly, let's. I guess let's each get in one last question here before we let him go. For mine, I'd like to go back to SpongeBob. There was an episode a couple months ago. I don't know how long ago it was recorded, but I, I just saw it a few months ago with my kids. And it was the one where all of you were actually on in live action. And it was a uh-huh. spoof of the show with you all in your roles, but perform live action. Was that fun to be able to do that with the cast instead of just voicing everything to actually get to oh, act out the show?
0: Oh my god, it was it was incredibly fun. I got into this early on. There's an episode before that called Goons on the Moon, where Squidward uh, it, uh, stows away on Sandy's rocket and they go to the moon, and uh, he gets lost in this cave, and he keeps sticking his head in these little holes, and then they would show what that other universe was uh, that he's sticking his head in, and the last one. Was real, real uh, live action, and it was the idea was he stuck his head through the um, the uh, the screen of a an, uh, uh, Nickelodeon animator's drawing computer, and he sees the the real life person and he screams, and then the real, real live animator sees the this this cartoon character coming out of the TV and he screams. Well, I talked them into letting me be the animator, ah, and. Uh, and so so the screen was, was, was squibber comes out screams, uh, the animator screams, and it's exactly the same screen. And it was it was wonderful. And and then soon after that they got the idea for this live action doppelganger sort of thing. You know, we have been doing this for twenty years now. We are very used to being in a studio and listening to Bill Figarbucky behind me and Clancy Brown behind me doing the characters, but to be on camera in costume trying my best to actually look and act like Squidward as well as to sound like him. It was a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> it was so, so freaking weird. And we want to do more of it. In fact, we are going to do more of it. There's going to, there, they have some more plans of short little vignettes of live action stuff with us doing our, doing our characters again. So that, that's fun. I always thought that should be a spinoff, actually. That would be a great fun thing to do.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. My, my kids love that episode, and, and uh, my kids are 10 and 7, and they instructed me to tell you they're
0: very big fans of yours. <laughs> wow. <laughs> tell them they are very intelligent people. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, you want to get in one
2: last question, then we'll let them go.
1: Yeah, I I was kind of curious because I, I I'm always very curious about people's origin story a, as creatives, and and in doing research, I saw that you began in your undergrad with radio and TV, and you were doing a bunch of different you know uh, crew things. And I was just kind of curious what your advice would be to to people coming up as creatives.
0: I say this to to young people quite often, um, and 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 I say it very sincerely. Um, you uh, you're not going to ruin your life by not throwing your marbles out and if you and and you know trying to do say voice work just that that narrow niche. Uh, I had to go to New York City to do it myself. Nowadays, with technology, you don't really have to do that. But if you've got the urge and you think you've got the talent, you really need to throw it out there and see what happens. If nothing happens, um, you go back and do whatever the other career is that you can do and and have an aptitude to do. The main thing is to try. The only failure is not trying. It won't ruin your life if you don't succeed. But you'll always wonder, what if, what Mm -hmm. what if I had done that? You know, the reason I I did what I did, I looked on television and I said, these people are not Laurence Olivier's. I can do what they're doing. I'm not talking to superstars. Just the regular schmucks uh, paying their mortgages, <laughs> and that was one of the the things that said, Hey, go ahead and try it." And I got encouragement from my colleagues then too. So, yeah, I keep going back to that thing. The only failure is not trying.
1: Hmm, it's good advice. Thank you, Roger. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so much for it's, your time. It's been
0: wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, for reaching out to me and. Uh, if I can do anything else to answer any more questions, I'll be more than happy to join up with you and talk some more.
1: Ah, oh, much gratitude. Thank you. And I'm going to do a little closing outro here. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. Also, we have a Facebook group, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall.